Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, all theater lovers, both out and proud and on the DL, and welcome to Broadway Breakdown, a podcast discussing the history and legacy of American theater's most exclusive address, Broadway. This is the first of many series devoted to specific artists that have helped shape Broadway as we know it today, both for better and for worse. It's called A Little Sondheim Music, and it is dedicated to the musicals of one Mr. Stephen Sondheim. I am your host, Matt Koplick, the least famous and most opinionated of all the Broadway podcast hosts. And with me is a good friend, a uh, friend of the pod. Uh, you know him from our famous two-parter episodes on The Wild Party. Luckily, this episode will not be a two-parter. Please welcome back Mr. Adam Ellsbury. How are you, Adam? Hello, I'm back. I'm good. Yeah, this this is not going to be a terribly long conversation. <laughs> 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 no, not at all. Because like <laughs> to be fair, to be fair, we tried to talk about the wild party in like one big swoop and then we were yeah. like, we simply can't do it. So we re I think we re-recorded, right? Oh yeah, we recorded that shit twice and it was like five hours both times that we did it. Yes. And I was like, it's gonna be a two-parter, which I just have to. Adam, what musical, what Sondheim musical are we discussing today? We are discussing uh, the uh, 1965 Broadway musical, Do I Hear a Waltz, with lyrics by Stephen Sondheim, yes. music by Mr. Richard Rogers. Yes, yes, yes. When I reached out to you about doing the podcast, Adam, did I give you a choice in musical? Nope. <laughs> sure did, didn't. Thanks. Sure didn't. Did I, did I or did I not say, you're doing Do I Hear a Waltz? You're welcome. It was pretty much an ultimatum. It was like this, I, you're going to come on, you're going to record with me, and this is your show, and this is your only choice. <laughs> it's your only choice. And, well, and, and again, we did have, you did get a two-parter about two very meaty musicals. That's true. We, we we did get to fully have a major discussion on something on, on something that we really loved. So yes. and before we you are get, on. Before you get really cunty with me, just remember, I didn't give you Saturday night. I like Saturday night. Oh, fuck you. But I have, well, but no, but I have opinions that will, about Saturday night that will feed into this. So this sure. is good. 
what is your history with Do I Hear a Waltz? Do you remember when it came onto your radar and when you first sort of dug into it? Sure. Um, let's see. Um, the, I, I, well, my my big introduction to Sondheim in general was Into the Woods. Um, and Never heard of her. I know it's a really small little little show, not, not well known. But I, um, but when that came out uh, on PBS, I was probably like ten or eleven, and I was learning to play the piano, and I got a book of vocal selections for Into the Woods to learn to play, mm-hmm. and um, and in the front of the book had all of Sondheim's credits, and so initially I just knew of Do I Hear a Waltz because I knew it was listed as something that he had done. Um, and then uh, I remember reading a little bit about it when I was like, you know, delving deep into my Sondheim obsession in high school and like, like the Sondheim and Company book mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Um, and then when I was in college, one of the songs at the beginning of the, of the semester with my musical theater class, we were given a book um, of basically like classic um, golden age musical theater songs. And we were asked to write a monologue out of context of the song to like create a new scenario for the song. But one of the songs in that book was the title song to Do I Hear a Waltz? And that was my first, uh, the first time that I'd ever heard anything from it. And I like the title and the title song is, is a fun little, a little ditty. It is. The first time I ever heard anything related to do i hear a waltz was actually from the carol burnett putting it together where they sing a version of do i hear a waltz that's not the actual version do you know okay because it goes do i hear a waltz i don't understand there must be a waltz oh where yeah is they, the like, band you put it to a different melody that's right and it's also a different lyric too it's it makes me think it might have been a discarded version of the title song oh, maybe I heard, I heard it and i was like this is kind of dull and uh, I think it was actually the first time I really heard a song from Do I Hear a Waltz was the Sondheim tribute concert from 1973. It, this is the concert that was done on the Schubert stage. Is the that the night- Scrabble concert? Yes, the Scrabble okay. concert. Mm-hmm. And they do it on the night music stage at the Schubert. Oh, right. And- I remember photos from it and they're all like standing on that weird carpeted stage. Yeah, yeah the carpeted green stage. Uh-huh. You call it weird. I call it iconic. And I mean, I, I love it. It's, it's, it's just such a choice we would never see now. Oh, absolutely. God bless Boris Aronson. I know one of the few set designs he didn't win the Tony for. He lost to Tony Walton for Pippin, which, you know, that that's one sense. of the times where I'm like, yeah, it makes sense. If you're going to lose, you're going to lose to Tony Walton and Pippin. But yeah, there it's, you know, it's a retrospective on Sondheim's career up until that point. And Dorothy Collins sings, do I hear a waltz? And it really, I heard it and I was like, oh, I like this. Mm -hmm. I like this one a lot. And also I just love Dorothy Collins. Oh, my other, my first main experience to the entire show was, uh, was when Encores did it uh, five years ago. Yeah. 2015, 2016 with Melissa Errico. Yeah. Uh, I saw that. I saw that version too. And I, and I, and other than that, I think the only other song that I ever knew from it was We're Going to Be All Right. And I think the only reason I even knew that song was from the 80th birthday concert. Yes. I also Jason Danieli and Marin sang it together. Yes. Jason Danieli and Marin Maisie. I also kind of knew of Do I Hear a Waltz because of the Sondheim on Sondheim review at Roundabout. Oh, sure. Yeah. Where he talks about his career and he talks about Do I Hear a Waltz and Erin uh, Mackey, I think is her name. Yep. Mm-hmm. She sings the title song. And did she? The, she does. Well, it's. The joke is that it's like the first time she's like really alone on stage to sing a song. 
and she's like really feeling herself and then the song cuts right in the middle and they cut to Sondheim saying like essentially do I hear a waltz was not was a failure and oh, a why musical and that's right you know, and he's like we basically can move on from it and then they cut back to Aaron Mackey who like looks back at the audience she's like well fuck my drag and then she goes you know what she goes what screw it I'm gonna sing the rest of the song I I totally forgot about that I was working there at the time and I think I saw Sondheim on Sondheim three or four times that I totally forgot about that moment but yeah now that it you was, mentioned it yes. I do remember I just like it when pretty young ingenues get moments to be funny because they they sure. don't get it very often but anywho yeah those are really all my times with do i hear a waltz i also had seen summertime with katherine hepperno up point with my grandmother not knowing it was based off of time of the cuckoo mm-hmm. until much later and so when i saw do i hear a waltz i had that in my brain mm-hmm. when i saw it and yeah it was a very interesting experience and we're going to kind of get into it today so now we know how we Great. got here here we are yeah here we are and do we hear it? Um, let's get into the into the nitty gritty. Let's get into the history of what led us to have Do I Hear a Waltz? Sounds good. So Sondheim is coming off of the giant failure of Anyone Can Whistle. He's had four Broadway shows. Three have been hits. One has been a flop. I think it's always interesting how when you listen to his shows in succession where you can hear the influence of the previous show mm-hmm. in the next show. Yeah, absolutely. Like I, 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 when I, I remember when I was first discovering Sondheim and like, you know, going through and like listening to things in order and you're like, you know, you get to even something like Sweeney and you're like, oh, but I can hear Pacific Overtures in this, which is well, so weird. But can, can you hear Merrily? Uh, can you hear Sweeney and Merrily? Absolutely. Tell me where. Show me the receipts. Um, in, uh, in Opening Doors, the end of Opening Doors, the, the button of it, the bump, 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 bump sounds like Sweeney Todd. There are, I mean, there's, there are other moments that I can't think of, right? Oh, just the horn stuff um, mm. during the bump, 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 that to me sounds like it's jazzier, but it has a, uh, there's something Sweeney Todd-ish about it, just in its aggressiveness. I, this has nothing to do with Sondheim, and I swear we're going to move on to Do I Hear a Waltz, but <laughs> can you tell how much I love this show that I keep putting it off? <sighs> I was talking to our mutual friend, uh, Justin, yesterday, and we were talking about Recitative and all these, like, you know, British uh, rock operas, you know, uh, pop operas. Mm-hmm. And I said, if you think about it, there's, Avita and Les Mis each have what I call the recitative melody, which is like the melody they each, they keep coming back to for the recitative. And they're oh, actually sure. very similar because you have Les Mis where it's like, we see each other at last. And then you have Avita, which is, so I don't exist. So I count for nothing. Try saying that on the street. Know, they, there's, there's a mirror there. <laughs> oh, for sure. And and both and both Patty musicals, but uh, yes, very much both Patty musicals. I wonder if she had any influence. No, not at <laughs> Imagine. all. No, she didn't. <laughs> Imagine if Patty went into Les Mis and she was like, "Can we make this a bit more like Avita?" Because I had such a great time doing that show. Okay, do I hear a waltz? My God, we, I mean, are- we gotta we gotta fucking do it. We're gonna do it. We're gonna do it. Okay, so anyone can whistle ends and it doesn't go well. This is an interesting thing because this is the last new musical that Sondheim works on where he just does lyrics and where he works with Arthur Lawrence because Mm -hmm. he will do lyrics again for Candide, but it's sort of a, it's, I wouldn't necessarily call that a new work. He's helping out a friend. 
Oh yeah, it's it's like an additional sort of yeah, like you know, can can you pop in a song for me kind of moment? Yeah, yeah. He 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 does he does a couple of things, and but it is officially the last time he does new lyrics for a new show and specifically working with Arthur Lawrence. Mm-hmm. And Arthur Lawrence kind of comes to him and says, you know, I think we should make a musical out of a play that I wrote, one of the only plays Arthur Lawrence ever wrote that made a profit, as far as we know, because he had many plays on Broadway that that all mostly bombed and uh, had a much more successful career as a screenwriter. And it was the play The Time of the Cuckoo starring Shirley Booth. She won a Tony Award for it. It ran for about six or seven months, which in 1952 was- That's a hit. Yeah, it's a hit. I mean, I was looking up that same year as when Glass Menagerie came out and that ran for over a year. So Mm -hmm. it's not, you know- it's not uh, uh, life with father running for 3000 performances, but it's that's successful run. And Sondheim really didn't want to do it, but on the, on the other end of the, uh, of all of this, he keeps on getting, I don't want to say pestered, but keeps getting ideas thrown his way by Richard Rogers to collaborate on something. Because as we've discussed already, Sondheim's mentor growing up was Oscar Hammerstein, the second, and right. so he knew Richard Rogers pretty well. He was very close friends with Mary Rogers, Richard Rogers' daughter. And when Oscar Hammerstein was coming towards the end of his life, he had said to Stephen Sondheim, like, I think you should do a show with Dick. Not because he was like, you two would work so well together, but because he was very concerned about leaving Richard Rogers behind with no one to work with. Right. Um, and so Sondheim basically in the back of his mind was like, I will eventually do a show with Richard Rogers to like essentially pay off this emotional debt I have to oscar not because he ever was like oh i would love to collaborate with richard rogers and uh richard rogers had thrown him a couple of different ideas over the over the years meanwhile richard rogers also does no strings which is a pretty decent success and wins him a tony award and sondheim keeps sort of turning him down mostly because he just keeps putting it off and finally arthur lawrence is like I brought this idea to Oscar back in the 50s to do a musical. He thought it was a good idea, but it was too close after summertime. The movie version of uh, Time of the Cuckoo had come out. So he said, let's put it off a few years. Then Hammerstein dies. And he's like, well, there we go. And so he's like, listen, Dick really still wants to do it. If we do a Richard Rogers musical, like his musicals make money. We will make money and we can sort of like get our credibility back because we've lost a little bit of it from Anyone Can Whistle. So Santa, and then Mary Rogers was like, please just do a show with my father. And sometimes like, fine which the you do not want to go into a show kicking and screaming which is no. kind of what happens well what's yeah what's so interesting about this show and i'm i'm sure you're you're ready to talk about this but like how everybody kind of was just doing it to make a buck yeah pretty much and how uh there's a uh steven's talk, sonam has talked about this in, in more than one interview but how he's kind of like he he he's basically been like i this was the show that i learned to never try to go for easy money mm-hmm. because there's no there's no such thing and Cy coleman wrote a song about it i don't know what you're talking about <laughs> listen easy money i know but, uh, but i does, know but in case how does children how does don't know how does her character fare in the end what do, do you, you mean she goes off to hollywood to do porn which she wants to do she's got agency oh. and then angel's and then one she, of the few, angel's one of the few characters in that show that gets away with what she wants and then she played the first lady and then she did oh melly um but but it's but it is a it's an interesting show where you you know it there's so much um record of everybody kind of being like we didn't really want to do it but it felt like we we should do it yeah it 
and especially if you go into uh, exploring the show and like listening to the score, knowing that you sort of feel it underneath everything. Yeah, the sort of like we're all like working by the numbers. Yeah, it it feels very much like a well, you know, this will do. Everything sort of feels like a here 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 is this yeah kind of. And especially because the writing of it and the production process got to be so tense towards the mm-hmm. end that everyone was like, I don't want to put in any more hours than I absolutely have to now. So whatever things worked on, you know, that they were working on at the beginning, anything that needed changing probably didn't get all that changed because they were like, I'm kind of done. I'm out. Right. Well, and I know that, you know, Richard Rogers was really set in his ways. Yes. And, and said that he, and basically said to, to Sondheim that he you know was his well had run dry and he had no new ideas and so he was he basically was just asking for for lyric copy from Sondheim with like very strict parameters mm-hmm. and it's like write this it has to have what was it was for everything had to have four lines to it it had to it had to fit a specific number of measures that's what uh, it was. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know if it was, well, actually, no, I think it just had, the measures had to be even. So I think they had to be. Oh, it was multiples of four. Yeah. 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 That's, that's what, what it, was. it was. And yeah. And, and Richard Rogers also was producing the show. So really like what he said went and Sondheim does say like part of the problem was that you could tell when writing with him that Richard Rogers was nervous that he wasn't going to have anything left. Whereas he says with, when writing Gypsy, he constantly had to kind of like calm Julie Stein down because Julie Stein's always bursting with new melody ideas. So anytime right. Stephen Sondheim was like, oh, I think this part, like this bridge here isn't working and Julie Stein's like, great, I'll write a new song. And he's like, no, let's just fix the bridge. And then on yeah. top of all of that, there's the underlying theme that Rogers was a blatant homophobe. And Lawrence, <laughs> Arthur Lawrence, who, you know, adapted his play uh, for the stage for, in this musical was an out homosexual, which is like pro- probably the only like, out and proud homosexual at the time right. uh, in like in America and Sondheim was not closeted, but Sondheim had his own sort of like uh, tricky history with his sexuality for a long time. I believe do I hear a waltz was the, was like the beginning of his finally like being comfortable as a, as a gay man. And mm-hmm. Rogers felt, first of all, um, toxic, feelings towards both of them for being gay and then also felt ganged up upon because he was he felt the odd man out he was the oldest of the three he was straight and just sort of felt like there was an agenda against him so he was working with this way of like i i have to fight against you and you don't want to fight against your collaborators (laughs) as i am currently learning with my project as i was telling adam about before we recorded (laughs) <laughs> well, I think it really, but it really shows, I think, in within this score, I think it's some of Roger's least interesting melodies. Mm-hmm. Like for a man who had, has some of the most memorable melodies of musical theater. Mm-hmm. And then you get into this show, which if, if I'm being honest, has like, I think Do I Hear a Waltz is probably the most memorable of the melodies of the show. Um he well, he and Sondheim both know how to write a good waltz. I but, would um, say, yeah, no, it's do. but it's true. No, no I, but they they that wasn't even a joke. But it's but no, it, it's silly. But yes, it's, it's true. I, I think both of them are are, are good at, at at writing in a, in three quarter time. Um, Richard Rogers is completely incapable of writing a bad melody what he is capable of is writing a pleasant melody that doesn't really stick with you and that's sort of what the era that we're 
entering into. Do mm-hmm. I hear a waltz marks the beginning of the decline of Richard Rogers as an artist? Because we then will go into the 70s where literally nothing he writes can stick. We have Rex. We have I Remember Mama. Right. Just all these shows that don't exist, that aren't real, that no one remembers. And yeah, I, you, and you can really just, it, you're, you're, it's almost like you're listening to somebody who gave up. This is a score that settles. Yeah, it's it, like every every song is like, oh, it's fine. Yeah, there are moments where you're like, oh, there's something here and it doesn't really pick up. I think that I think that might be the most frustrating thing about listening to this score. And if you've mm-hmm. never listened to this score, I would say you should, but it's a it is a sort it's sort of a score full of missed opportunities. Yeah. Where there are numbers that are meant to be comedic but they're not funny enough, and I don't know if it's if it's a lyric problem or if it is lacking in like a a boost with a different melody or rhythm mm-hmm. or something that would have brightened it and made it funnier. There's the whole song um What's the song where they're all talking about traveling? Uh, what do we do? We fly. What do we do? We fly. And it's, it is kind of, it's a list song and it's a lot of, it is a lot of funny ideas about traveling, uh, especially at that time when mm-hmm. flying was n- still newer in terms commercial of commercial flying. Yeah. Commercial flying. Um, you know, and so I'm, I'm sure at the time for people watching, seeing the show who were now getting used to this new form of, of, normal quote-unquote travel Mm -hmm. um that that there was more humor to the idea of it but i guess now since i don't know since we're so used to it it just doesn't it it doesn't have as much humor to it but i think even then it for then it feels flat yeah i don't think i don't think this song probably landed that well even at the time i think what i think the concept of the song what do we do we fly was supposed to make the audience laugh of a oh my god it's so funny because it's so true um, right it's, it's like a, oh my god same yeah because it's oh, about girl, you know, same oh, but oh nobody... girl me too girl <laughs> it, it that song is they were trying to do an it me with this song and it just doesn't really hit well i just i just realized we haven't really discussed the plot of this show so the plot of do i hear a waltz is basically <laughs> how leona got her groove back and how she got her groove back and was sad about it. Right. Uh, it's yeah. So, okay. Let's, so, uh, let's finish up the history and then we'll get into sure. the, we don't have to go into full details. Cause the truth is like, this is a musical where nothing really happens um, because the play, nothing really happens. It's more about uh, ideas. I want to say, I don't know. I, I don't think Arthur Lawrence is, was that great of a playwright. I think he wrote, the best libretto for a musical ever with Gypsy and has written some pretty good screenplays. Sure. I think Rope is fucking ridiculous, but it's fun. Sure. Uh, but the turning point is good. And, you know, oh, Anas- yeah. and Anastasia is pretty that. good. Yeah, turning uh-huh. point's really good. Anastasia is pretty good. Um, the way we were, it's fine. I don't think it's if the way we were leaned more into it just being a schmaltzy romance, I would buy it more. But Arthur, it's Arthur Lawrence, so he's like trying to also have a point of view on communism and uh, the double standard of women in Hollywood. And I'm like, you're not covering all of this in a two hour Barbara Streisand movie. I'm so sorry, right? Yeah, no, sorry, no, no. but yeah, so they finally get together, they they, they write the show. And like this show is basically just doomed from the beginning because no one really has their heart into it 
Rogers is already sort of resentful that Sondheim like deigns to write this show with him. Uh, it's already based off of a play that like was successful, but was not, you know, a glass menagerie death of a salesman where everyone's like, oh my God, how are they going to do it? They're like, oh yeah, oh, yeah I sh-. can't wait. Yeah. Everyone's like, oh yeah, that show I kind of liked that would turn into that movie that I also kind of liked. Right. It's very that. And their director is John Dexter, who is a British director who I guess was finding a lot of success with the uh, Royal, either the National or the Royal Shakespeare Company. Okay. And it was already like the wrong choice. Apparently what they, who they wanted was Franco Zeffirelli, who probably would have done a good job with it. Oh, sure. Because he has that European sensibility and also he's highly romantic and you need sort of that red-bloodedness in this show. But apparently at the meeting they had with him, Rogers fell asleep. Uh, and Lawrence, <laughs> Lawrence was like, he was probably drunk and fell asleep. And so the meeting went bust. And so they got John Dexter, who also was very misogynistic, would not learn any of the women's names in the company. He would only learn the men's names and would say to women, he's like, you over there, move over here. Oh, good. And the story, so then they are also like, we're trying to figure out who they wanted as the leading role. And Bancroft was considered, she was uh, also a contender for Funny Girl the year before. And I actually think Anne Bancroft probably would have been decent for this she i think she could have had some of that hard edge to her and you know vulnerability mm-hmm. you know the story about funny girl right with her and funny girl no it's just it's a it's a case of julie stein being a son of a bitch so they're they're figuring out funny girl and they can't get someone to star in it like first it's going to be mary martin and that's when Stephen sondheim is being courted for it and they're like well we're thinking of mary martin and he's like there's nothing jewish about her and they're right. like, oh, and they basically are like, oh, you're right. No Mary Martin, but also no you. And uh, <laughs> they're like, they're still figuring it out. And then it comes, it was like possibly going to be Carol Burnett, who like probably would have been pretty good. Yeah. And then basically what happens is Anne Bancroft isn't like officially signed to do it, but she's, they're basically like, we're just going to, we have Anne Bancroft. She's interested. We're going to like tailor the show to her and then we're going to figure it out. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, Julie Stein discovers Barbara Streisand at the duplex. So um, I don't know. I don't remember if I can get it for you. Wholesale has officially happened at this point. No, I think it has, but she hasn't become a singing star yet. It's like about to happen. And he discovers Streisand at the duplex. And he's like, this is our Fanny Bryce. And Ray Stark is like, no, no one's going to pay tickets to see her. And so what he starts to do is he starts to write, the, and the score hasn't been written yet. So he starts to write the score for Barbara Streisand's voice, knowing Anne Bancroft is not the biggest singer. So sure. when he and Bob Merrill sort of sh- play her like three or four songs, like I think they play People and Don't Rain On My Parade. And Anne Bancroft's like, it's great. I can never sing it. So I think I should leave. <laughs> and Julie Stein's like, I guess we bring in Barbara Streisand then? <laughs> like, oh no, I guess... Oh. oh no look what happened by accident <laughs> I just think that I love that it's just him being like I know what's best for my show so I'm gonna do what I do and it, he just trolls them like it's great but so and Bancroft yeah and Bancroft comes back again uh in musicals with do I hear a waltz but that doesn't work out Mary Martin also is interested but Arthur Lawrence says she's too old which is hysterical because she's the exact same age that Shirley Booth was when she did the movie uh did the play which was was she in her 40s or 50s at that point Mary Martin was in her early 50s at this point. Okay. They eventually go with Elizabeth Allen, which, do you know much about her career? I tried to look it up. I, not not really. I mean, I kind of, I, I did a little wiki on her and she, I think it's, it's interesting that she, I guess she started out as a model. 
Yeah, um, she she started off as a model who then started getting work on TV. Right. Her big and thing was um, she was on the Jackie Gleason show, yes. and they at the beginning of his. Uh, his show there was always a, a a beautiful woman who would do his like and away we go well yeah she was she was the beautiful she woman. was the away we go girl yes and then when she left they according to the interview that i sent you the link to once right, she left they didn't have a girl say that anymore jackie gleason started to say it but they still had a they still had a beautiful girl on the show but she yes that was sort of like her big quote-unquote break and then she got a lot of other tv stuff and yeah, then everything i saw on her was pretty much that she just was like guest spots on tv and it wasn't yeah, I it think, wasn't like a big massive no career. her her biggest success was actually post do i hear a waltz she got a lot more long standing tv stuff after do i hear a waltz but she was never a very famous person i think what it was was she had gotten a tony nomination for the gay life either a year or two before and was sort of this oh, wait, up and, i saw that she was like this up and coming musical theater actress so it, it would be the equivalent of um jesse mueller doing on a clear day and then getting beautiful right after that like i think that was sure. the trajectory they were hoping for is everyone's antenna is up on this woman and this is going to be the show that makes her a, a star mm-hmm and you know we saw what happened uh yeah they they the other story with her is because john dexter was such a dick and she was already kind of nervous about having her first leading role role in a musical they're getting ready to do their um dress rehearsal not the dress rehearsal their what was called at the time the gypsy run through and we know we don't say that anymore but that's what it was called the gypsy run through which is, you know, you do a final run through of your show right before you go out of town. And it's, you know, whatever theater is not hosting a show, which apparently was like the Winter Garden a lot of the time, because that's what I'm sure Gypsy had their run through at the Winter Garden right before they went to Philadelphia. And do I hear a waltz had theirs at the Winter Garden? I'm like, apparently the Winter Garden was just sitting pretty a lot. Um, But John Dexter and Elizabeth Allen. Are we calling it industry run through now? What do they call it? Well, I don't think they really do it anymore. The the legacy run through. The legacy run through. <laughs> but yeah, but I mean, it's a thing that we don't really do anymore because it's once you do, I maybe like I don't know, maybe they do like an, an yeah an industry run through for like ten people in the studio, but no one goes to like an empty theater. Right now, it, nowadays everybody just like will go to a workshop, but then you don't yeah. really get the yeah you don't get the pre out of town run through like yeah you're right some people will go to get to go watch it in a rehearsal studio or something yeah but so they they are getting ready to do the run through. And the director, John Dexter and Elizabeth Allen have this huge fight, basically because she's like, you're a misogynistic asshole, learn all of our names and like treat us with respect. And she's just so angry that they do the run through and they're like, she did it with like the ferocity of Ethel Merman and Gypsy, which was wrong for the show. So we had no idea if the show worked or not. And so they had to wait till they like got to Philadelphia to know if they had anything. And that was where they did the majority of the work. And even then the biggest thing they really did was they brought in Herbert Ross to add choreography because they really didn't want choreography in the show. They were like, this is a chamber musical. We, we, it's just, it's scenes and, and songs. And they get to out of town and all the reviews were like, this show needs to move a bit. And, and on top of other things, they're like, the songs are kind of whatever, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, you know what? The thing we can really just fix is adding choreo so they bring in herbert ross to add choreo also they're like the show's called do i hear a waltz and no one's waltzing mm-hmm. hello or were they did, was it always called do i hear a waltz yeah i think it was always called do i hear a waltz. okay yeah well, you know it's sweeney todd at the demon barber fleet street and no one's cutting hair right <laughs> so yeah um they go out of town and all that wonderful stuff happens 
and they come to Broadway and it opens 1965, March 18th, 11 months after anyone can whistle. Let's get into, oh, apparently at one point when they were out of town because they were dissatisfied with Elizabeth Allen's performance, there was, this actually pisses me off because this would have been really good, really good casting. There was discussion of Gwen Verdon replacing her. Like this was going to be Gwen Verdon's comeback musical. Oh, um, like that wasn't what it was designed to be. But when they're out of town, no. I think maybe that'd like, be I think interesting her, though. Yeah, I think Herbert Ross was like, I think I can get Gwen to come in if we're not because she's looking for a new show, and if we really don't want Elizabeth, like we can bring in Gwen. And I was like, oh, that would have been good. It it would have given the show the personality that it needed and the heart that it needed. Yeah. So okay. What is the show? What is Do I Hear a Waltz about? Do I Hear a Waltz? What is it about? Um, so, I mean, the basic plot uh, revolves around a woman who is a, she's a, uh, she's an American woman who works, I guess, as a secretary in the States. And she's kind of having like a, a midlife crisis, but she's in her thirties in this musical. So yeah. she's just having a crisis. In the original she, play and in the movie, she's older. She's like late forties, early fifties. Right. So a little bit more midlife, Um, but she's in her thirties and having a midlife crisis. And so she like has like a full eat, pray, love where she's like, I'm going to go to Italy and, 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 and have a a minute for myself. Yeah. Um, I want to, I want to experience some things. It's, um, it's, it's very eat, pray, love has to all I got a groove back. It's also kind of, um, you know, like that movie, the last holiday with uh, Queen Latifah. Totally. Yes. Yeah. She finds she finds out she's dying. Spoiler alert: she's not dying because it's a Queen Latifah movie, and you don't kill off Queen Latifah. But that's a movie where she basically like she dumps all of her savings into living life and like going abroad and just having this big old trip. Totally. And, that, and that's a little bit of Do I Hear a Waltz? It's slash Time of the Cuckoo. She she decides to take time for herself. She's gonna have a summer where she goes right. to Europe. So she's staying essentially at like a kind of like boarding house bed and breakfast kind of place with all of these American and English tourists sort of coming in and out. Yeah. So you kind of get to know a couple of the tourists and the the landlady who runs the establishment, who's like very Fräulein Schneider, but not Fräulein Schneider. Cause there's not, I had, the, I had the exact same thought when I was listening to her song. I'm like, this is very Fräulein Schneider. So what vibes, but she's uh-huh. supposed to, but she's supposed to be more like sexual, more, more Mrs. Robinson. Yeah. Yeah, she yeah, totally. Um, but um, th- but this but so Leona is the name of the lead character. Um, Leona, I think. How do you pronounce her last name? Because I couldn't tell if it was so. Because it's S A M I S H, and I'm like, I think it's, to- I, I think it's Samish. They keep saying Samish on that interview, which just sounds like sa- sandwich. But yeah, because I'm like, mm-hmm. wouldn't it be really on the nose if it's Leona Samish? Like, because she's the same as literally all the basic bitches. That sort of thing about <laughs> Leona that is, makes her. Not, I want to say it makes her interesting as a character, but the play, the play and the movie don't shy away from the fact that like there's nothing really special about this woman. No, it's kind of just an everyday kind of not. I don't want to say generic because that's rude, but like she, but there, the character itself is kind of generic. There's nothing terribly exciting about the way this character is written. Yeah, well, she's she's. I think what so many stories are sort of are. She's an every a, woman. Yeah, the, exactly. So many stories try to make it about like, this is someone who's unique and different from anyone else. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's supposed to like give the story its sparkle, especially with women. There are like women in a lot of stories in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. It's supposed to be like, this woman's different. And there's something nice about the fact that like, it's not that there's nothing special about her, but rather like there are so many women who are just like her. It's not as if she comes to sure. Italy, goes to Venice specifically, and everyone's like, oh my God, 
I've never met an American like you. It's like, no, I've met a million Americans like you. There's nothing wrong with that. I like it, but you know, you're right. not, don't think that you're the exception. You're the rule. Yeah. So, but she, uh, on early on in the, in the show, she's, uh, she decides to, um, she has nothing to do on an evening. So she goes to like sit out in the middle of the piazza and ends up meeting, uh, a man who runs a, is what kind of store is it? It's like a glass. It's an, it's an antique, antique store. store. Um, who, who flirts with her, um, and she ends up falling for him. But of course, you know, dun, 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 we find out that he's married. And yes. so it becomes a bit of an, you know, a, a forbidden love yeah. throughout the rest of the show. The play it never feels dangerous. Yeah. Well, okay. She has trust issues and she doesn't, she can't really bring herself to believe that this man would be interested in her. And then when she finds out that he's married, she's like, oh, you just, she first thinks, oh, you just want my American money. Then it's, oh, you just want my body for a night. And then it's like, oh, you want both. And we, we never really know if either is true. Uh, if he's, if he really is into her or if he's, if there's some kind of thing in the back of his brain. Yeah. His, his character is not given a lot of depth in terms of where he's really coming from. It's more, I think it is kind of more of from her perspective. You're just sort you, you, he, he has quite a few songs, but a lot of them, they, they just feel very surface. Yeah. And the play in the movie and summertime is really it's a it's inspired by time of the cuckoo more than it's really based off of it it's not you know beat by beat they kind of cut a lot of the subplots and you know chunks of it but the general idea is still the same where it is about a woman uh who's lot who's let the uh younger part of her life pass her by and is now trying to find something out in the world that she can enjoy, but she's so repressed that she can't really allow herself to. And then it's also about sort of how American sensibilities and European sensibilities clash, but it doesn't really explore it enough to have it uh, work. Even in the play, I really don't think it's, because it's a lot of talking. It's like the play is very like, you think this and I think this, and you don't really get a lot of action. And the musical is the same. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) (laughs) wonderful so she like leaves and the relationship ends and they're sort of like well we're both a little sad but we're kind of friends and i'll go back to america and that's it that's how that's how it ends and but she like falls in love with him for a second and it's called do i hear a waltz because she says early in the musical when i fall in love i always i think i'm gonna hear a waltz when i fall in love right she has her total like meg ryan rom-com moment of Mm -hmm. like this is what's gonna happen when i like when I, when, when love comes my way. Yes. And it's very, it's what it is. It's actually very Anne Hathaway in the princess diaries where she's like, my foot's going to pop when I have my first kiss. Right. Sondheim calls this a Y musical. He says it's a musical about a character that doesn't really sing. And his original idea, his pitch was like the main character is not going to sing until the very end. Cause she's so emotionally closed off. There's no way for her to tap into her emotions, mm-hmm. which I don't actually agree with. I think that a character like Leona is prime material for a musical because everything's internal. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm listening to the score and I'm sort of rereading the plot and I'm finding clips again. And Leona actually kind of reminds me a lot of uh, Samantha Jones in sex in the city, specifically in the episode, my mother bored myself, which if you're unfamiliar with sex in the city, or at least you don't have the database that I have in my brain with everything. It's a season four episode where we find out that Miranda's mom has died and all the women go out to Philadelphia to the funeral. And like Samantha 
is very removed the entire time. When they f- find out that Miranda's mom is sick, then they find out that she's dead. Uh, Samantha's like kind of shuts down and sort and tries to like plunge herself into sex. And she famously can't, she lost her orgasm in the cab. But <laughs> what happens is at the end, they're at the funeral and, and you know they see Miranda and they're like, so sorry for your loss. And Samantha can't bring herself to say it. So she says, oh, you look great. And they're in the church and Miranda and Sam- and Samantha make eye contact and Samantha sees like Miranda feeling vulnerable and and Miranda stops to look at her because Samantha's all of a sudden starting to have these well of tears in her eyes and she mouths I'm sorry and Miranda says thank you and then mm-hmm. Samantha just breaks down and it's a wonderful moment on a show that gets a lot of flack mostly rightfully so but there's so much about the show that is still brilliant and Samantha's really the character where you see that because she's this character where you think, oh, she's so tough. She's so abrasive. She's so closed off. She clearly has no feeling. And Samantha is, a, is an embodiment of people. And I know people in my life, and I'm sure you do, where it's like, no, they're so abrasive because it's like the moment you touch on a nerve, they will crumple completely. Oh, yeah. Every, everything is a defense mechanism. Yes. They feel actually so deeply that they have to put up these like really thick, quote-unquote impenetrable walls because god forbid you've slipped through the cracks like they are just a baby inside right and that is for me leona where or rather what leona should be yeah i think that it's the other thing i that happened while i was listening to all of this was i i started listening to it and going what if sondheim had just written this score himself right and also if he had written the score like seven years later Mm -hmm. not in 1965 we just, I, th- I really do think we would have gotten a lot more of her internal situation throughout. I think it would have been one of those, it would have been one of those scenarios where, you know, Sondheim probably would have turned to Arthur Lawrence and been like, okay, write me like eight different monologues for these different moments and what her, what she's thinking and how she's feeling and why she's processing this, this way. And I'll musicalize them. And yeah. he would have, we would have had some great like internal um leona soliloquies yeah it either needs more emotion or it needs more danger it's just where it stands it's just very safe very content the the two things that i thought that i think of especially you know based on the subject matter and the location it's like like i've already said it's like it's like how leona got a groove back it's white lady how stella got her groove back but it also it kind of I feel in some ways, even though I realize the plot is not the same, but in, in some ways it is, it has a very uh, light similarity to Piazza. Okay. I was going to, I'm bringing up Piazza and the legacy. So say what you want to say and I'm not going to respond. I'm just going to say that I think that what, there are moments there there are actually moments in Piazza that mirror a lot of moments in Do I Hear a Waltz that are better expressed in Piazza. Like um, if I, if just to draw parallels for people who are listening, cause I know Matt will already probably have recognized these things, but he's not imp- putting his input in here. So I'm just going to go. I'll never um, put in my input without a major compliment, honey. <laughs> so, but like the opening, so the opening number of Do I Hero Waltz is Leona arriving in Italy um, and her excitement about being there. Um, and at the end of the opening number, she falls out of the gondola into the, the um, whatever the waterway is. That yeah, she's the, the canals. Yeah. Um, but it, it, it has a very similar level of excitement 
to um, statues and stories at the beginning of Piazza. Um, it's and but I think that one of the things that's um, that's that doesn't work for the Leona version versus the Piazza song is um, I think just atmospherically there there was a conversation from. Um, from I don't remember it was in one of the videos that that you sent me Matt um and I don't remember if it was the one that where Richard Rogers talked or if it was the one where Sondheim was talking but they they said oh you know what it might have been Arthur Lawrence but they were trying to avoid um the sounds of Italy like they didn't want it to like go into um like you know all of a sudden like there's mandolins and everything um and I think in some ways that's kind of what the show is missing it's missing um a not an authenticity. Like, I don't want it to sound like that's Amore, but I want it to sound, I want it to have that, that energy and life underneath it that Piazza manages to have, um, where the opening numbers have a similar sentiment. Um, but I think the, I don't know, the opening number of, of Do I Hear a Waltz just feels very repetitive to me. Yeah. It's also, it, it provides this disconnect to the, to the city that it's taking place in, I find, especially because I think that the way that Do I Hear Waltz opens is actually really lovely. So the opening number is called Someone Woke Up. And mm-hmm. it the way that it begins with church bells, and actually there are some mandolins there, I believe, it has this, what I, what I call, there's a European aroma in it mm-hmm. uh, where you can, you hear it and like, I can see the sun rising over the canals. Sure. It actually gives me very like Disney 1950s vibe, like very Sleeping Beauty. It's mm-hmm. very Aurora walking through the woods at dawn um, or right. dusk. Dusk is when the sun rises, right? Dawn is the sunrise. Dawn is the sunrise. Yes. 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 yes, yes okay. So I don't know these things. I'm pretty. It's uh, very, it's very Aurora walking through the woods and Sleeping Beauty at dawn. Like that's the energy that I'm getting from it. And it's mm-hmm. beautiful. It's very luscious. It's very European. And then Leona comes on and you could argue that it's artistically meant to do this because she's this American who pops in, but it's very like, and it's exciting. And I actually do like the melody. It's yeah, um, no, I do too. And I actually really like the lyrics because it has a very American gung-ho attitude about like, oh, golly gee whiz, look how beautiful Europe is. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's excited. But, you know, it's, I think because Piazza, and I don't want to talk about it too much because I really want to talk about it after we finish discussing like the intricacies of this show. Mm-hmm. Statues and stories feels more like they're actually taking in the city. They're allowing it to wash over them. Whereas someone woke up, is Leona like setting her flag in Venice and be like, I'm here. And it's just not... It's like it. Ha- it's a fun little energy, but it doesn't have um, a connection to what she's singing about. Some people cry at Vienna or Rome. This one is mine, Cookie. This one is home. Look, they even painted the damn sky just so Leona could come here and cry. The person that has the best songs is the 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 man de rossi yeah i think de rossi's well first of all they were written i don't know were they written specifically for sergio franchi or were, was it just that they um they were they, they fitted it to fit it to his voice after he was cast but i think some of it was written before he got before he joined the one big like 
show quote unquote showstopper song bargaining that was written for him because they knew because sometimes and sometimes like we i even told rogers like he needs to write when he's singing in the voice of the customer that needs to be in frankie's uh falsetto because he has this great falsetto right and that and that number you can tell is written to be a big audience pleaser Mm -hmm. and i and i i have to say so uh the on the cash recording it's fine there there is a video on youtube um if for anybody out there who is interested in looking it up there's there's a half hour long special from uh from some network television uh, american musical theater workshop or something right but they have elizabeth allen and they have sergio franchi on and they sing i think five or six songs from the show and hearing hearing sergio franchi or seeing him perform bargaining I can see how as an audience member, I would have been very charmed by him. Mm-hmm. And this is a tangent. I apologize, but tangents look who I'm talking. in this economy. I've what I, one thing I found incredibly ironic in uh, watching the other uh, TV interview with Sondheim and Arthur Lawrence um, from the same time period, right when the show was coming out was how they seemed so averse to have letting the show be charming Mm-hmm. they talk so much about like well we don't want it to just come off come off as charming and it's like but with a show like this don't you like i i think i think you want to be charmed by a show about someone who's trying to find their their identity and their self in you know in a foreign country like to me it's like charm me what why don't you want to charm me like i feel like that's that's kind of the idea he says that if you did it must have cost a thousand more you say to rococo he says shall i rap at you is it real venetian he i can guarantee it let me see some others please madam all we have are these may i use a check to pay madam anything you say will you mend it we will mend it can you send it we can send it will you madam can you madam is it madam may madam let me think it over i'll come back Arthur Lawrence and Sondheim, and you can see these problems with West Side Story and Gypsy as well. Not that those, not not that these are problems in the show, but problems in the in that they experienced while creating those shows. Is Sondheim and Lawrence really? I think we're trying to do right by the Italian characters and not sort of um, fetishize them, make them these oh charming foreigners who we know nothing about but like they're so oh, aren't they so swell like because he says i didn't want to see the citizens of venice like dancing around like we see in kiss me kate i didn't want to have the main man right. be like you know this lothario and there's some uh nobility to that that they were really trying to not be these ugly americans fetishizing another culture in the way that you know walt disney was famous for doing right i mean they were they were trying to be respectful of the culture which i completely well, yeah, appreciate yeah. But I think if you, I think especially if you're going, if you're if you're looking at a world from the eyes of your lead character, mm-hmm. I think you can fully respectfully, dis- like you know, put the display the the world that they're in, but still make it charming and exciting as the person who's taking it in for the first time. So something Sondheim talks about in finishing the hat, and I think it's also in Sondheim and Company is Jerome Robbins really taught him what. Uh, uh, theatrical sensibility was as opposed to logical sensibility because mm. Sondheim 
very much gets in his own head about like, well, realistically, it would be this and this person would say this and do that. And Rod and Robbins would always be like, the show needs this, though. And right. you, so that's like in order to keep the audience on track. And no one who is a Robbins is working on this show that has an innate sense of what the audience will need or what's going to make it flow, what's going to keep it going. The, the last show, the last musical that Jerome Robbins will work on in his lifetime is actually this very same season, Fiddler on the Roof, which is like his final like pissing all over Schubert Alley going like, I did it, peace out. And I think that what you're saying is very true and it shows how sort of Lawrence and Sondheim are these very intellectual, very talented men. Sondheim is a genius. Lawrence, I would not necessarily say was a genius. He was very, very intelligent though. And their lack of understanding the theatrical sensibility that the show needed is also what did it in, in addition yeah. to the fact that their hearts just weren't in it. And that yeah. Rogers wasn't willing to push himself because he was afraid that if he were to like break out of his comfort zone, there would be nothing there. Right. Um, and it's all very evident in the score because it's a pleasant enough score. But when he I'm, says, when Sondheim calls this a why musical, I'm like, I think you could make a musical out of this. I think right. you can make a really good musical out of this. Uh, the problem is that like none of you were really, were really willing to kind of like test it out. You all were kind of coming at it with different attitudes and I would argue all sort of the wrong ones. Yeah, it, it feels kind of, it feels kind of slapped together um, and, and not, tried and tested yeah well so okay um another example we talked about this with what do we do we fly which is a cute enough number where leona's with all the other members of the boarding house and it's each of them talking about what they experience when they fly and sondheim said what i really wanted to do was sort of show that leona could not be alone she kept on extending the conversation to keep everyone in the house with her so they wouldn't leave and she'd be all alone mm -hmm. that does not register at all in this song um, but that's a great idea for a song. And I think Sondheim, if he were to write it 10 years later on his own, could totally do it. And that would make it a much more compelling musical number. As it is, it's kind of cutesy, it's kind of fun, whatever. But there's no sense of any kind of dramatic tension underneath it. It's sort of the song ends and you forget about it. I don't think the airlines allow babies unless they promise to cry. The kid I noticed the first was the one who stood on my feet. The kid I hated the worst was the one who kicked my seat. There was one in the left who bit. There was one in the right who spit. There was one in the back I hit. But what did we do? We flew. Ooh, what did we do? We flew. No, no, no. I, I really couldn't have another one. It's only water. Okay. I hate planes. And a lot of the songs, too, I think in some cases, his... His wit is to his detriment in terms of the writing. I think that because Sondheim, there are plenty of songs that he has written that I think have lyrics that are funny, but I would say more often than not, his lyrics are very witty, but they're not like slap your knee hilarious. Mm -hmm. It's, you know what I mean? Like it's, they're, they're not full of, you know, like David Yazbek knee slappers. Yeah. I would say a little priest is the pinnacle of where Sondheim's wit actually works in his favor because the jokes of the song are how witty he is with the rhymes. Yes. So I wouldn't I even say, yeah, like Priest doesn't really have punch lines. It's more like you keep on being surprised at just how clever he can be with all of this. Mm -hmm. And that yeah. is, but, but that, yeah, but you're right. Like that's a very specific example where that works in his favor. Many times the songs, the lyrics themselves are clever, not funny. Right. 
and I think that this in in with a lot of the lyrics in this show, you know, there's again it, from that interview with uh, with Lawrence and Sondheim, where Lawrence, you know, is making a point of you know, well, this is one of the first times that I think audiences have ever really sat down and listened to the lyrics of a show. People don't usually listen to the lyrics. You know, a song starts and they have already decided what the song is about, so then they just kind of sit back and go, oh, this is the love song, or oh, this is a song about you know selling bread or whatever it is. And mm-hmm. then they, you know, they they just kind of stop paying attention. But Lawrence claims that this is the first show where an audience is like paying attention to lyrics, which is kind of rude to say. I mean, it's also bullshit. Is, it's 100% bullshit. Oh, it completely is. But I think it's, it's a weird way of defending something where I think that he even is, I think he even realizes that the songs are very like unnecessarily wordy. Mm-hmm. And that they are relying too much on wit and not enough charm. Yeah. So this is a show where I felt like Sondheim should have kind of gone back to where he was when writing West Side Story. Because what I say about West Side Story, having now been listening to these shows more or less in order, I've been recording this podcast a little bit out of order. So that's been throwing my brain for a loop. But there's no, it's, it's all on me. You need some of these songs to have like, just open-throated, gut-wrenching passion, which it yeah. doesn't have. Yeah. Because, and that's sort of the sensibility that Lawrence was trying to write with Time of the Cuckoo of like, Americans are oppressed about sex and about love. And Italians are much more like, this is the world. We are humans. We feel things. Like, there's nothing wrong with that. Just like, we're attracted to each other. Let's go to the canal and let's go to the gondola and screw. Like yes. what's, what's so wrong about that? I've, I've, I've taken a lover. I've <laughs> just to I've, give you a, just if, if you, t- yes. To bring back sex and reference. Ladies, I've taken a lover. I've taken a lover. That, cl- that clash I think is what's necessary. It's, you can have the sort of wit of the Americans or even like the repressed nature of the Americans, but you need that like, bold passion in the Italian songs and you can see Sondheim like kind of trying but he doesn't really know how to do it you have a song like Someone Like You which first of all before Adele before Frank Wildhorn there was someone who wrote a song called Someone Like You <laughs> and before, I, like, I before that, Jason Robert Brown did he write a song called Someone Like You he wrote, oh he wrote, I could be in love with someone like right, you right, right. So the moment I said it I knew exactly what you were talking about but it's sort of like a, a embarrassed to be so unabashed, if that makes sense. And songs like, uh, what is it called? Stay. Um, yeah. Oh, songs like yeah. Stay or Moon in My Window or um, Take Moon in My moment. Window has, uh, it. that is a song. I have to say that is the song in listening to the recording that I was the most frustrated with. Mm-hmm. Because I, in listening to it, I thought the lyrics were actually very pretty, and I thought that the idea of the song was very was was really pleasant, mm-hmm. and it and that was one where I just was like, oh, this this music and lyric is not meshing for me. I'm it's not elevating this moment to the like the moment like that pure. Um, it, it needs that Italian passion underneath it. Yeah, I feel the same way about here we are which is when she's yeah. sitting in the piazza alone, where it's the lyrics are kind of self-deprecatingly sad, but the music is very like, ba-ba-da-da-da, and it's 
Well, that song is very much, it feels like, uh, like Clara in, uh, what is it? Um, in Piazza, the, um, oh my God, why am I forgetting the name of the song? Beauty the one is. in the, the, she sings in the museum. Beauty, the beauty is. The beauty is. That's what it, that's what that song kind of wants to feel like. It wants to have that vibrating. Yeah excitement of like being in a new place and seeing you know and trying to like get the attention of a person Um, yeah it's everything is always just sort of so satisfied to like sit and sing and there needs to and i think so when and and you can sort of understand the moment that sometimes like oh this is a character that really wouldn't work well in a musical and i'm like it's and i and i said earlier i think this is a character that's perfect for a musical you can understand why all of her songs don't really work because his attitude is just like so conventional of like, well, she doesn't feel much. So here she is. I'm like, no, like this is a song where she should be so desperate to like connect with someone. So instead of like, here we are again, it's like, oh, like I, I, why can't I connect with someone? Like, why am I alone right now? Like I'm in this, I'm in the country of love and here I am like having pizza alone. Mm -hmm. It's, it's both a frustration and, uh, I, I don't know, like uh, a self-defeating attitude. Here we are again, sharing things together. See the pretty people, feel the pretty weather. We don't have to say much, we're so much of a I guess we can talk about the main song, the title song, Do I Hear a Waltz, which is probably the closest the show comes to, in my opinion, of like connecting to what it could be. 100%. It's the one song that like, and thank God it's the title song because yeah. Jesus. Can you imagine if you got to the title song and you were like, meh. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's happened. Sure. Um, no, I I think, because it, it, it's, I, I think that um, it has, yeah, it has all the lift that you've been wanting for like, but the private, it's too little too late is the problem. Yeah. But it is, I think, I think, and Sonheim, it's it's a lyric again, where Sonheim is so critical of this lyric because he thinks that it's too, I, this isn't his word, but I think he thinks it's too cutesy. But honestly, f- for an audience in that moment, you, you, it's what you want. You want her to like be able to have this, like, it's kind of a, um, it has a very similar feeling actually to uh, In Love With A Wonderful Guy. Yeah, very much so. Um, and it's, and and it it almost lifts to that level. It's almost there. But it, it should ha- get to there, but it doesn't. It doesn't. But I but because everything else I think is just so middle of the road for both of them, it finally you're like, oh, something is like elevated, you know, mm-hmm. and is actually exciting. And so for that, I can't I I have to say it is probably my favorite song in the show, only because it finally feels like what I've wanted to hear the entire time. Yeah. Weirdly enough, while I think that Bargaining is probably the most interesting song of the bunch because of the going back and forth of uh, baritone and then uh, falsetto, and it's but and that's also like weirdly a song where it's trying to give also personality to a character that's essentially a stock character. It's also a little bit too little too late. Leona's two big songs, Do I Hear a Waltz and uh, Someone Woke Up, are probably my two actual favorites of the of the score. I think there's an excitement about them and an attitude that's not as super judgmental. I feel like, you know what it is? Mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of the score is weirdly judgmental of the story, of the characters, of everything. It feels, I think part of the problem is that there are also a lot of, and Sonheim's dealt with this in 
many of his other shows, but there are a lot of jaded characters. Mm -hmm. And I think the problem is that in the, in his other shows, I don't feel like this, the characters let their jadedness ruin the song. Mm -hmm. But in these songs, I feel like the characters are jaded and it kind of ruins the song. Yeah. They can't ever allow themselves to be excited for a moment. And that's really where, where the song should be. That's why Do I Hear a Waltz actually feels nice because you're like, oh, it's somebody who's just having a good time. Roses are dancing with peonies. Yes, it's true. Can't you see? Everything suddenly Viennese can't be you. Must be me. Do I hear a waltz? I want more than to hear a waltz. I want you to share it I'm looking at a lot of my notes on a lot of these songs and my last three notes are like, stay. I go, first, the song stay, I wrote, this is a nothing song to me. Perfectly lovely couple. I wrote, fine, pleasant. Uh, Thank you so much. I will say though, that stay, I think is it, I think musically is a beautiful song. I I don't know. I keep trying to think back. I've listened to, I have now listened to this entire score four times in the week leading up to this episode. Each time I try to think of stay, I can barely think of it. There's... I think maybe it comes from just like the, especially now, like the, where you get, we've gotten so used to hearing this, like this, what, what musical theater sound is now for most men, which is this like poppy, you know, kind, kind of unintentionally nasally placed sound. And for me, there's just always something so thrilling about getting to hear a nice full voiced from either from either sex quite frankly mm-hmm. hearing a nice like beautifully trained full voice sound mm-hmm. and and um and hearing uh Sergio Franchi sing that song which goes up to that beautiful falsetto note it creeps yeah. up into it there's something so satisfying about it that i i'll kind of like forgive the rest of the song for sort of being not great because you're like oh thank you i was about to say i was about to say like the when i think of that song the only thing i think of is the final note to right. be perfectly honest, yeah. Um, but I don't let it doesn't make me go, oh, I like the song. I just I'm like, yeah, it's the thing. Um <laughs> Thank You So Much is like weirdly kind of a mixture of with so little to be sure of and uh some other time from on the town. Oh yeah. It's Both of which are much better songs. Much better songs than this one. I have to say, and I know we're not talking about anyone can whistle, with so little to be sure of is one of my favorite Sondheim ballads. It's a beautiful ballad, but that's also a song where I actually think it works better out of context because when you watch it in the show, it's, I don't know. I don't feel enough about Faye and Hapgood together to make that song have the emotional impact that I think it should. When I hear it out of context with two singers in a big orchestra, I actually get more emotional listening to it then. Right. Well, and I think, well, no, I, I don't disagree with you. I think that, it, you know, to talk about the song for two seconds, like I think that the, that that song kind of of the songs in that show, which are mostly very specific to the moment, mm-hmm. is a little bit more of a generic kind of uh, vibe as opposed to specific to them. Mm-hmm. And the only time that it ever is, is when the counterpoint when he sings Come With Me, Faye. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, it's not you don't feel like it's necessarily about them. It could just, it, it, it could be, be about, about anyone. Anyone. lovers who are struggling with their moment of being together. Yeah. We, what's weird is like, I don't know, I guess so much of like what chorus stuff in, 
and me and my and 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 anyone can whistle like her lyrics are so specific to her even if the genre in which she's singing is much more like i don't say generic but more familiar and then yes. the Faye and hapgood stuff it's like more interesting music but lyrics that are kind of more generic totally maybe that's why i think that's why their stuff works better out of context anywho um do i hear waltz thank you so much it's yeah it's very with so little to be sure very some other time both much better songs yeah and again it's because basically what happens is like Leona gets drunk at a party where she lets slip that the young, hunky, possibly gay married guy had sex with the mistress of the uh, of the boarding house. And then like lets out that she doesn't believe that the Italian guy that she's let herself fall in love with really loves her mm-hmm. and can't bring herself to trust him. Like the next day she kind of sobers up and he's like, I'm out of love with you. Basically, you, I, I did love you, but you were so closed off and so unwilling to let me love you that I just, I can't. I'm too old. Yep, that's the other thing is he's supposed, they're both supposed to be older in life. In the original right. play, they're both in their probably like early to mid 50s, maybe even late 50s, and right. not necessarily knockouts. Like they're, they're, they're just, you know, earthy human beings. And then right. the, and the original company, Elizabeth Allen and Sergio Franchi are these two gorgeous people, much younger in life. And he even has a line, I think it's in stay where he's like, are you beautiful? Am I handsome? And it's supposed to be, Oh yeah. It's supposed to be this, um, uh, rhetorical question of like, listen, neither one of us is and you're like, like, we're not Jen, yeah. Ad- we're not Jen Aniston and Brad Pitt in their youth. Like we're in our fifties or sixties and you know, we're not stunners but we're into each other. Like why overthink it? Let's just be together. They're for supposed a to be more like the couple from ballroom. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. Much more 50%. Yeah. And, and part of it is the casting of the original, but the, that has kind of maintained in later castings as well of the casting. These much younger people and Arthur mm-hmm. Lawrence, this is okay. So let me, yeah, let me, let me just finish up. So yeah, so that all happens and they kind of just go with thank you so much and that's their like, you know what? We're going to be friends now and then they peace and she, she leaves Venice having finally loved and experiencing heartbreak and being sadder, but she's wiser now. To quote Meredith Wilson, she's now a sadder but wiser girl. Right. And that's there how, and on top of all that, the Americans now leave the, the boarding house and new people are coming in. And that's, it's, you know, every day is something is something else, but it's all the same, but it's all wonderful. And that's Do I Hear a Waltz. Um, the casting of Elizabeth Allen, who is this gorgeous woman, so talented up the wazoo, has this wonderful voice. And Sergio Franchi, who is also this, am I saying his name correct? Yeah, Sergio Franchi. Yeah. These two beautiful, very talented people who like could be on the cover of Life magazine and you go, oh, like, I yeah. want that. Give yeah. it to me. Uh, and then Shirley Booth, for anyone who doesn't know Shirley Booth, Oscar winner for Come Back Little Sheba, and then star of the TV show Hazel, like was not, even in her youth, was like not a beauty queen. Or she rather I should like say was not what society deemed conventionally attractive. She was like the epitome of what people would probably consider nowadays like a character actress. Yeah. And there's, but there, there was such a depth of depth of sadness and having lived in her being mm-hmm. that was so relatable and Catherine Hepburn who I weirdly enough like I was not the biggest Catherine Hepburn fan growing up I always sort of felt like she was kind of herself and everything and what changed my mind was actually her performance in summertime because I, I thought it. oh it's it's a good movie she's really good in it she yeah. is tapping into a well of vulnerability that you normally don't see in a Catherine Hepburn performance. And 
this is where I kind of call bullshit with Arthur, Arthur Lawrence. Like when you said, he goes, oh, first time you're really hearing the lyrics. And he says, uh, when you're collaborating on a musical, you really need to have no sense of ego, which I laughed out loud when I heard. Because I was like, Arthur of Lawrence. Of all saying, of the people. Of all the people. Arthur Lawrence saying that in order to successfully write a musical, you need no ego. It's like Alex Timber saying to successfully direct a musical, you need nuance and subtlety. <laughs> In order to successfully do Moulin Rouge, you really need to scale it back. Like that is, it's very that. Or like, girl, shut up. Um, And he went on to say that the casting of Elizabeth Allen at the time, at the time of her casting, he was like, it's actually really perfect. I always wrote Leona to be younger. She's not single because she's old and dowdy. It's she's single because she's emotionally closed off. So it's actually really perfect that she's 35 and a stunner because the audience goes, why is she single? And then we find out, oh, she's unpleasant. And right. <laughs> and like that sort of thing is like Leona is kind of a little unpleasant, but you're also supposed to kind of feel for her like the reason again the reason why she's so uh, unpleasant not all the time but just sometimes is Mm -hmm. it's a it's a defense mechanism and we're supposed to kind of see the bleeding heart underneath it all which i'm sure shirley booth had in spades which Catherine hepburn does really well in the movie well and it's like we were uh, the other day uh when i was doing a little bit of research and i discovered and shared with you that deborah monk played that character the role in time of the cuckoo yeah at lincoln center and we were both like well that's a great casting choice for that character absolutely i I would have even liked to have seen her as leona in um, the musical absolutely the casting that i found out going back to the very beginning the episode where i read that i was like oh she should have opened it on broadway was dorothy collins oh completely what so do i hear a waltz opened in 1965 and the reviews were kind of like I don't want to say mixed. They sort of went from being slightly favorable to mixed to kind of slightly negative. Walter Kerr, who hated Whistle, basically says like, it's fine. It's not great. It's fine. John McClane. (laughs) John McClane in Journal American has one of my favorite backhanded compliments where he says, the sets are occasionally almost breathtaking. (laughs) Only, Only occasionally are they almost breathtaking. Which is so interesting because in the footage that exists online from the rehearsal shots, that Mm -hmm. set is beautiful. The set is beautiful. It's a very odd kind of set because the, so the man who did the set design. It's like layers and layers of scrim, basically. Yeah, a lot of scrim. And the set designer comes from the opera world. So he's much more in the uh, abstract kind of scenic design. Right. And this is a time where like automated sets are now a thing and like hello dolly's out and about and fiddler has opened a few months prior with its turntables like we are becoming more sophisticated in how a musical looks and how it moves and this is much more old-fashioned everything about this production of do i hear a waltz is old-fashioned and the sets are gorgeous but they are gorgeous in like a i don't know in the same way like you hear a pleasant rogers melody and you go oh that's really nice it doesn't really like stick with you you see it and you go oh i love the colors but as soon as it as soon as the set piece settles you kind of are used You're to like, it. oh, here it is. Yeah. Like it, it, it doesn't take your breath away, but like it comes in, you go, oh, that's really lovely. And then it settles and you go, okay, I'm done. <laughs> Which is sort of, in my opinion, the whole show. Uh, oh, com- yeah. That's, yes. Yeah. yeah. So it opens and, um, and closes after about six months, a perfectly respe- respectable run. It's nominated for three Tonys, best actress in a musical, best set and best score. This is Sondheim's first Tony nomination, which is crazy. Um, because, well, so West Side Story and Gypsy, best score is not a thing. Uh, I believe the writers get a Tony Award if the show wins best musical. Isn't that so weird? It is weird. There was 
there was best producer. I think at one point there becomes like author of a work, but that goes to the book writer. Score becomes a thing. Well, actually, score was a thing in the early parts of the Tonys because like uh, Rogers wins best score for South Pacific and then it goes away for most of the 50s. And then- Which is insane because it's like golden age. Yeah. (laughs) Comes back in like 62, I want to say 63. Uh, Yeah, I guess- no. 62 because it's how to succeed the year of how to succeed is the year that i think score comes back okay and then sondheim is not nominated for forum which right. is uh wrong because while that is the year that has oliver and little me and yes they get they should absolutely be nominated in fact i would give the tony to little me forum should have forum should have been nominated over bravo giovanni a show that nobody knows nobody remembers uh yeah no, that's not a thing. Forum, forum is full of some gems. Like, I, there's Forum's a great score. It works great. so well for what it does, and for a musical comedy that's sort of trying to be old-fashioned, it does a lot of new things with the music that mm-hmm. is really exciting. It's a sixty totally. sensibility of vaudeville, and it's great. Uh, absolutely should have been nominated. Anyone can whistle. Looking at what the nominees were, I was kind of on the fence of I thought that should have been nominated because that was the year where She Loves Me was nominated for musical, but not score. So wait, it was, it was, oh, oh, right. Which is that, also insane. It's absolutely it insane. Funny Girl. It's Funny Girl, Dolly. Right. High Spirits. Okay. And 110 in the Shade. And I think take away High Spirits, put in She Loves Me. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I think 110 in the Shade actually should stay because with Whistle, while I do love the score, it doesn't necessarily work with the show because the show itself doesn't really work. Right. Whereas 110 in the Shade and She Loves Me are scores that not only enhance the show, like they work with the show while also enhancing it. So I think that they should stay. Um, but if there was a fifth slot, put Anyone Can Whistle in there. Totally. Yeah. I, 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 God, I'm so surprised that She Loves Me wasn't nominated for score. It's bonkers, especially when you listen to She Loves Me and it's just like song after song is a home run literally for i know this isn't for everybody for me that show does not have a single clunker in it not a single one to act act to alone to go from try me oh where's my, my shoe vanilla ice cream she loves me trip to the library and there's like, knowing you and there's minimal dialogue between all of those songs absolutely we're not it's, it's not a baseball field's worth of dialogue yeah no it is minimal and yeah. it's like I mean, especially for, yeah, because right after Try Me, you go, well, there's the, oh, that's true. There's the scene for, but it's Where's My Shoe into like maybe two minutes of a scene and then ice cream. And then She Loves Me directly after that. Yep. And then two minutes of a scene uh, before, before library. the library. Yeah. And it's then just, maybe two minutes of a scene before Grand Knowing You. It is. Yeah. They get through it. And then that final sequence, 12 Days to Christmas. It's, I I, I want to get into like maybe a Bach and Harnick series at one point. Um. I don't know. We're, I'm still figuring out what the second season, uh, second series is going to be. I'm yeah. so knee deep in Sondheim right now. I can't see straight. <laughs> like I can't, I like, cause this is, I, I did the math. This is going to end in June, this series, okay. which is crazy. Um, are you doing, are you doing like little, th- are you doing evening primrose? Are you no, gonna, I'm not. So what I might do stage musicals. Then? I'm just doing stage stuff. And I'm, the episodes are coming out in the order with which they premiered in new york with a priority on broadway so for example um saturday night is going to come out before assassins because even though assassins came out in new york in the 90s it arrived on broadway in 03 03 04 um so then the frogs will come out after assassins yes uh the frogs is uh the the frogs and roadshow are going to be the last two 
Gotcha. Which is so funny. Um, and on I a might real do, high note. I, I'm possibly going to do two special episodes that like I'll pop up in the same week as the new show. One on Sondheim reviews, like putting it together and side by side by Sondheim and Sondheim on Sondheim and Marry Me oh, a Little. Sure. And then another episode on film work. So it'll be like Dick Tracy and Evening Primrose together. Okay. Cool. Uh, as, as well as his, you I know, musical score for Reds, because who doesn't want to talk about Reds? Woo! And his and his additional song for the Birdcage. Oh right, of course. Yeah. I, I don't, I, I, don't, I, I don't know if there's there, we, we've never like reached an, like an appropriate moment to have this conversation. We talked about the song for like a hot second. I of of I am of the camp that I just I don't like. We're gonna be all right. I don't love it. I don't think the, I don't even think the original lyrics are all that great. I think that no. they're clever. They're not very funny, and I don't think they're all that insightful. I don't. Yeah. And it's trying. I mean. I, I can understand how, you know, th- because there is a playfulness to the lyrics. Like I can understand why Rogers would have gotten excited and been like, oh, it's like, you know, it's like a heart lyric, but it doesn't have those heart lyrics that he's thinking about are the ones that would have had like an encore mm-hmm. where he would have been able to write a song that's like so fun and witty and cute and the, that the audience would be like, woo. And then, yeah. and then the, the refrain would start back up again. Yeah. And I feel like that's what they were wanting this song to be and i know that ultimately it ended up being like the most truncated version of the song ever because mm-hmm. of you know the three you were saying earlier but even even you know now that the since it's been pretty much put and put back intact like and and whenever people do it for concerts or whatever it's always the full version i'm always just like oh yeah well i, I think the like song, song the song the song's popularity and its standing is more due to the legend of its history of the fact of like for so long we never got the original lyric and it was it was the Sondheim equivalent of with the Cats movie where like release the butthole cut like be brave and show the public like the real thing so when we find out that there was an original lyric that wasn't allowed right but then you listen to it and you're like that's it I mean, it's a better lyric than what they released. Sure, um, it's, it's definitely it's better. Generic. It's less yeah. generic. It's more specific to the to the characters for sure. I just, but it's, yeah, it's not as if we're like, oh my god, this is what we were kept from forever. Like, it's a, it's all it is. It's just a better version of the original song, which was very basic to begin with. Meanwhile, relax. You take a lover, I'll take a lover. When that's played out, they get the axe. We can retire, sit by the fire. Fade out, we'll build our house upon the rock of my virility. We'd better scurry, we're gonna be all night. Oh boy, we're gonna be all right. Yeah, do I hear a waltz? It sort of like came and it went. Even the play that it's based on, like you listen to interviews with them talking about it. And they're like, based off of, you know, the hit play, Time of the Cuckoo and Arthur Lawrence, which who gave us Home of the Brave. And I I had to look up his IBDB page again because I was like, am I misremembering Arthur Lawrence's Broadway career before West Side Story? Because as far as I'm aware, none of his plays ever really hit with New York, except for Time of the Cuckoo. And they're right. going on about like, all oh, these other wonderful plays that he uh, wrote. And like, I know that they had their fans. I think Leonard Bernstein or maybe it was Jerome Robbins was like, oh, Home of the Brave is one of the best things I've ever seen. But they lasted for a month, maybe two. Yeah, I thought it was funny. I mean, I understand that like, you know, obviously Gypsy and West Side Story are bigger 
hits than anyone can whistle by a long shot. But I just thought it was funny in that particular interview how the interviewer and maybe Sondheim and and, and Lawrence were like, don't bring up anyone can whistle. It's a sore spot. We don't even want to discuss it. Yeah. But he's introducing the two of them and he's like, who collaborated on, on such hits as West Side Story and Gypsy? And you're like, and just last year opened the Broadway musical anyone can miss. No, we're not going to say it. Uh, Okay. Not say it. I think it would actually have been shadier if he was like, and Gypsy and the list ends there. (laughs) Just fully acknowledged. We are not going into that other thing that you did. Um, No, I think they definitely don't about it. Yeah, definitely don't bring it up. But um, they talk about time in the cuckoo and all this other stuff. And I'm looking forward to I'm I the only thing I was really looking forward to about this episode is the last Lawrence musical because mm. I'm looking forward to not having to talk about him anymore because I really don't care for him as a human being nor as a creative no. because I talked about it with the Gypsy and West Side Story I don't think Lawrence ever intended for those musicals to really be his legacy I think he always thought his plays and the movies he wrote were going to be the things that defined him and right. always and always thought of himself as more intelligent and better than his collaborators and then after gypsy like the 60s is a weird decade because bernstein basically leaves musical theater forever and then just becomes this giant in the classical music world right and jerome robbins you know west side story i think they all thought was that was gonna be like the pinnacle of robbins but then he like kind of tops himself again and again he does (laughs) uh he does fiddler which is like his final thing in theater and that's really his big like ta-da but even like doing Mother Courage, which wasn't a huge hit, but like proved that he could do a straight play of importance that people liked. And oh, and he did um Oh Dad Poor Dad. Oh Dad Poor Dad. I'm feeling so sad. Mom's hung. I oh, know. So mom's hung you in the closet. I'm feeling so sad. Yeah. And you know goes on into the ballet world and is and has you know a long career there. And there's a retrospective on his work that does really well on Broadway. And Sondheim in the '70s becomes Sondheim. And Lawrence kind of gets forgotten you you, he has a very successful career in the sense like he writes the turning point in the way we were in the 70s and he starts directing gypsy and that sort of becomes his legacy of like directing all the revivals of gypsy but you see with the patty lapone gypsy you see with the 09 west side story his disdain that his collaborators had bigger more beloved legacies than he ever did Mm -hmm. and he has this resentment about it and he starts rewriting history about what made those shows work about the talents of his collaborators and his own career and saying oh i knew that home of the brave was going to flop because the director did this with the staging and i'm like home of the brave flopped because no one liked it uh time of the cuckoo was successful but post 1960 no one really thinks about it it only had one other major production in new york and that was with deborah monk in 2000 and you read the reviews at the time they're like the production's okay the play's not great Right. And that's sort of where it all kind of ends up. And yeah, like you, you, you listen to him talk about, do I hear a waltz and his, and his input and what made his work so important. And it's like, you're kind of your own worst enemy here. You really need someone else to come in and do this because you're not who you think you are. And yeah. yeah, And, and it's interesting to sort of see that kind of, but also that confidence in himself and his confidence in being able to give compliments to his collaborators at the time. That's sort of the last time he's ever able to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause then afterwards he always gets, it just gets very resentful. I don't even know what led me down this part this path, but that's just sort of where I, where I, I needed to end it with this. 
I just think, well, if, I, I mean, if, if, if we're wanting to come to a close, I just think it's funny. I was, I'm, I'm looking at the, the finishing the hat book and it was reading towards the end of hit of Sondheim's little, you know, uh, blurb before the the lyrics start to happen but the last one of the last things he says is the show deserved its failure i had learned from observing lenny that there was nothing wrong with failing as long as you don't fall from the high the lowest rung do i hear a waltz was the lowest rung When we talk about the legacy, Do I Hear a Waltz has no real legacy outside of the title song and the legend of the original release the butthole, we're going to be all right lyric. Right. And it's now sort of resigned to the whole like, oh, this show that Rogers did with Sondheim and that's interesting. And, you know, it had a brief run in regionally where Dorothy Collins found actually a great deal of success with it. She did it in she did it in some random ass state. Oh, I think maybe St. Louis, actually. Sorry. St. Louis isn't that random. She doesn't like St. Louis and then a paper mill and then uh sure. you, like it because it sort of gets her back into theater which is really nice but by 1970 fully gone they do it at encores it's sort of like a okay yeah no that's pleasant and move right along no one goes at it and goes oh my god the the things we took for granted in 1965 this show actually is a thing right and no and also i mean the truth is nothing that season was gonna outshine fiddler fiddler was the big cheese in town mm-hmm. but you, there were some shows that still managed to like make a dent uh half a sixpence ran for over a year floor of the red menace was a big flop but it got liza her tony and like even that has a bigger legacy than do i hear a waltz totally and and a, and, and more interesting songs frankly and more interesting songs yeah where I think Do I Hear a Waltz really kind of leaves a legacy, and we were talking about it earlier, is Light in the Piazza. Mm-hmm. Because it's the next musical that really touches on what Do I Hear a Waltz touches on, and its connections run deep, because Adam Gettle is the grandson of Richard Rogers and essentially the protege of Stephen Sondheim. Right. And it's, you know, this guy who takes a takes a work about, you know, Americans in Italy in the late 50s, early 60s. And it's about that sort of clashing of sensibilities of the American repressed, close off sexuality and the uh, beating heart, passionate, you know, heat of the Italians. Mm-hmm. But whereas Land in the Piazza kind of makes it questionable of like, you know, oh, it doesn't, they don't even notice that Clara is mentally impaired because. First of all, the language barrier, but also like, oh, her tantrums are just like our tantrums. Oh, those Americans. Yeah, but but there's actually something weird about that because you know how, so like, I don't know if you've realized this, in the internet, in the internet, let me start to say, uh, every great sentence vast, is started with in the internet. The vast, deep, depth, dark. What people talk about like reconnecting to your childhood roots of, you know, we embrace Disney again and, you know, right. finding the joy that you found as a child and there's people say like, oh, the irony of, you know, you spend all this time in your childhood being told how to grow up and then you get to become a grown up. And it's like, well, go back to connecting to who you were as a child. Mm. And I think what that really means is having the 
intelligence and the self-restraint you have now as an adult while also like being honest with your emotions as a child of like I'm angry and it's okay for me to like say that I'm angry and kind of let that out mm-hmm. and that is sort of what the beauty of Clara's character is is her having that mental uh, impairment isn't to say that she's emotionally stunted or mentally stunted not like she's like oh she's a five-year-old she's probably like more intellectually speaking like a pretty precocious 13 year old in her head she was 12 when she got kicked by that pony sure and 12 and you know 1958 is probably 18 today and if we're being perfectly honest uh and 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 there's some gray area about her character of like you know it's been a few it's been you know 14 years since then and who's and who's to necessarily say that in those 14 years she hasn't grown up somewhat it's more that it's not like she's stuck in like this in groundhog day like she she yeah. has had experiences that she remembers it's yes. she, it's not like she can't remember anything and 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 one could argue if her mother wasn't trying to keep her in this mold of little girl like who knows how much further she could progress and that's sort of where the show ends of Clara's finally getting out of the uh, out of the cage and we're going to sort of right. see like how she blossoms from there if she actually can sort of become a person of the world Right, where where mom lets go a little bit. Yeah, it's about it's truly about letting go in a really kind of bittersweet way, where it's Clara gets to have love, mm-hmm. but there's you know, it's tied to a lie and things that are being withheld, and we don't know necessarily how it's going to go. Whereas, do I hear a waltz ends with no love and allowing yourself to kind of be free? But Line in the Piazza has that West Side Story romanticism of like no judgment there is tension and there is danger and there's acknowledgement of the of the uh of there's knowledge of uh there's acknowledgement of the danger that's there but it's not judgmental of the characters or of the sensibilities or of the romance it takes it very seriously and very earnestly and i think that's why lighting the piazza works so well and on top of that as you said earlier it embraces the the italian atmosphere it's not they don't use the clap they don't try to so whereas arthur lawrence tried to write a play about the clashing and then what they and then when they turned it into a musical what they did is they put an american sensibility on an italian environment gettle i felt tried to really blend the two to create this harmonic uh sound which i think he succeeds at brilliantly yeah i mean well it's and it's one of those i remember being so taken with Piazza the first time I saw it um, the in a, uh, I'm not even going to butcher the name of the title, but in, uh, in Fabrizio's first song um, right. and when he, which is completely in Italian mm-hmm. followed by a scene that is completely in Italian, mm-hmm. but you don't, and there's no super titles anywhere in the theater. And I remember like, it took me a second to be like, wait a minute, am I missing something? Am I missing something? And then you're like, Oh no, they're trusting me to fill in the blanks. I can, mm-hmm. You, they, they don't want you to be like, you know, you stupid American. You enjoy this, mm-hmm. and and that was, and that's why I still, I will say, I still struggle to this day. Even though I, during the Ayutumi number, there's the mom that steps out and does the whole joke about, I don't speak English, but I have to tell you what's going on. I think it's funny, but I still think it kind of ruins the moment for me. <sighs> I don't know. I think Ayu to me is a song that like kind of weirdly doesn't fit light in the piazza because it's a very melodramatic comedic number. But to go into the Robbins territory, it's a song that we kind of need. That's true. Because we we've gotten through so much of Piazza yeah. that does not have a ton of humor. 
That's and we're kind of coming back into acting. Like it's necessary. We need it. Yes. But I absolutely, I absolutely hear you. I do understand what you mean when you say like that joke and then the whole second half of IHME sort of being played for laughs. Uh, it does kind of ruin for a moment anyway, that momentum that we've been having with the language barrier and with the uh, romanticism and the, and the passion but I think because it's been so much for so long, like we, it's nice to have a moment to just like breathe and laugh and go sure. like, okay, the, uh, like the writers also are aware that this can be a lot for some people. Well, and I, th- and I think going into that second act, which is quite heavy yeah. in a lot of cases, it's nice to kind of start it off with a bit of a giggle just so that you don't feel like you're, you know, you've, cause you've ended act one with that amazing cliffhanger of Margaret walking in on the two of them in bed together. Mm-hmm. And so to, you know, kind of ease the tension and like give you a minute to be like, oh, this show does still have a like a light sort of side to it. But and then just, you know, go full dark. Right. <laughs> Are you saying that Clara's mental breakdown is dark? You stop, you stop right now. You move, you move away from him. Oh, I see you stealing. That's dark. Honey, no one told me. That's my opening line when I go up to guys at bars. I go up to them. I get I, with my drink and I go, you stop. You stop right now. You move. Can, you move away from him. I will say from that that breakdown, one of my favorite. You know how you like you just pick a lyric that you that it's it's not that it's a bad lyric. It is a good lyric, but you find something so entertaining about it. Out like it's camp. That's what this is. It is a camp lyric. When she says, "Don't you have a house? Where are your babies?" Mm-hmm. I think that lyric is hysterical, not within the context of the moment. Mm-hmm. But that, but that to me is a very campy moment. Her, it's, her, I think, freak out. Yeah. Well, that's another example where like truly context is every, is everything. Because if you yeah. don't know the show, and if you're like, or if you just like, some very adventurous Judy decides to sing it like at her cabaret, <laughs> you don't feel like what is this lyric? But it, I think it actually makes sense because of in her tantrum is her at her most childlike, and yeah. she's calling out sort of the elephant to the room of like you say you're in love but like you're always at your parents and you don't have children like and it and in clara's mind she's like married people have families and they live alone and there's a way you do things no i know i know i know i know i know i know but but yeah it is it is it is a silly lyric when you take it outside of itself but again that's why you always need context so bottom line is do i hear a waltz doesn't really have a legacy but it has another musical that it's tied to that basically springboards from this uh 40 years later and improves upon it immensely yeah and is tied to its creators which is fun so let's play my final rapid fire question round you ready to go bitch i think so okay the sondheim rhyme what is your favorite sondheim lyric in this show I think I have to go with only just because I, I like the song so much. Title song, Do I Hear a Waltz? The 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 multiple you rhyme, the such lovely blue Danube music, how can you be still? Mm-hmm. Almost too clever for its own good, but also very satisfying to say and to sing. So I think that's my favorite. That's a great one. I also like that he rhymes peonies with viennese. Sure. I had a dream cast. Who would you want to see in a production of this? I don't know. I mean, honestly, can I, I this is, I, this is not, I'm not trying to cheat this answer. Having seen it, I don't need to see it again. <laughs> but if you had to, you know who, I would love to see uh, Jesse Mueller do this. You know who I would love? Okay, I'll bite. I'll, I will say uh, Carmen Cusack. Oh, yes. 
yes, bitch. That, okay. I don't need to, like you, I don't need to see Do I Hear a Waltz ever again. If I do see it ever again, it's going to be starring Carmen Cusack. Love it. Moving on. I don't even need to cast the rest of the show. That's, but I'll just say, I would like to see Do I Hear a Waltz starring Carmen Cusack. Well, that'll, that'll answer your very last question with this. So next question. God, that's good. Where does this show rank for you in the Sondheim canon? I mean, I don't, it ranks low. I, I, there, it's, it's, I would say it's above the frogs. Okay. Um, and I, I don't know. I had, I have so many mixed feelings about so many Sondheim shows, but I will say like, overall, I just find Do I Hear a Waltz to be unexciting, even with, even with, you know, issues and things that I have with some of his other shows. I think that they're, they're much more exciting than this one. So this one I would say is like right at the bottom. I think the other thing is like, because it was, I think there was such promise and they just squandered it and I get a little angry. And then finally, it's the little things, AKA there won't be trumpets, which I realized when I started doing this podcast, I didn't explain why I asked this as a question. When I say, how would you downsize this musical a la Roundabout, John Doyle, Daniel Fish? It's because Sondheim shows famously in the last 25 years continually get downsized when they Mm -hmm. come come back on Broadway. Like you don't see a full scale Sondheim musical. If you do, it's very rare, like the last Follies. But even then, like, big old orchestra unit set. Like we don't have. Right. It, it doesn't, we'll it doesn't get the Lincoln center treatment. And somehow I feel like he has decided that, well, and maybe he's always felt this way, but I, I, but I can't help but wonder if it's like, he just has somehow been convinced that this is the better way, but he, he seems to really love the idea of chamber versions of all of his shows. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, but isn't it exciting to hear your show done gigantic? Like, wh- like night music? Come on. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I don't know his thoughts on night music. I think Sweeney, he always wanted Sweeney to be intimate. So he loves intimate Sweeney's. I don't if, mind yeah. If there was a way, like I would have loved to have had Sweeney open originally like the Winter Garden with that big old, old orchestra. So mm. it still has that big sound. But because the Winter Garden is one of the few like quote unquote grand theaters that's actually very intimate the actors yeah. are very close to you yeah um but yeah i i think he's also just kind of got um kicked puppy syndrome when it comes to these shows where it's just like well, this seems to be the only way that broadway is willing to revive me and i want my shows to live on and i'm not precious about any of it so like sure. yeah do what you need to do so how would you downsize this just do a one woman show with carmen cusack Absolutely. Ooh, that would be fun, actually. No, I think I think that you know they they are they already sort of had the idea. I mean, it's based on a rather small play. Mm-hmm. I, there really aren't a lot of like actual characters per se. I think that the number of named characters is like maybe eight. Mm-hmm. I think it'd be very easy to do this in you know in a in a black box theater with eight people and like maybe three musicians. Yeah, I also think all the characters other than DeRossi are pretty interchangeable and don't really mean all that much to Leona. So you can have all the other named characters double as the ensemble. Like have- I almost I think I actually might almost like this show more in a tiny setting. Yeah. I think if I saw this show like in the new house or something, mm-hmm. with a just with just a really small suite with, De- with Deborah Monk. They shouldn't have done Time of the Cuckoo. They should have been doing Hero Waltz with Deborah Monk in the new house. Totally. I think then I might have enjoyed it more. Same. I like that. <laughs> um, Adam, this has been lovely. Thank you so much for joining today. Thank you for having me, even though this wasn't the show I would have picked, but 
no, Adam. No, would it's, have picked... it's, I, I, I love talking theater to you, with you. You know that. Of course. Adam would have picked Saturday night. We've established that he really loves it. It's his favorite song time. And he won't, take, you. he won't that take haters. True. How dare you all. Uh, Adam, where can people find you if they want to find you? Um, I mean, really right now, my, I, my only social that I'm active on is Instagram, uh, which is just Adam L's A-D-A-M-E-L-S. Yes. Do you share any of your designs on there? You know what? I don't. Um, I, so I, Matt knows Will this. You? Uh, I, yeah, eventually I, I'm going to have a separate Instagram once I'm offering my services. <laughs> okay. Um, but I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm working on getting my degree in graphic design and I'm, it's, it's going really well. I will be open for business soon, but, and once that happens, like I'll have a portfolio and an, an Instagram account dedicated to that. But for uh, now, it's just me being stupid. Just you being stupid. Yeah. You can find me on Instagram, Matt Koplick, usual spelling. And if you like this podcast, make sure you subscribe, make sure you review, make sure you give it five stars. If you don't like this podcast, give me five stars and write me a shitty review. Uh, Say, I hate this guy. His opinions are wrong. Um, Do I hear a waltz is the greatest thing that sometimes ever contributed to the musical theater. And that's erasure. And how dare Matt Koplick? I would love to hear somebody's opposite argument. I want to talk to somebody who loves this show. I would too. I've yet to find them, but I would love that. I don't think they exist. It would be a big ask. Oh, I'm sure that those people exist. I And it's not a judgment call. Like if you love the show, I would I genuinely want to know why. I always say- yeah. I, I always say, I'm waiting for someone to change my mind. Like I want someone to fight me on this and convince me that I'm wrong because I don't like, I just think there's some fun to that. And I have changed my mind in the past. I have like either seen a production of something or I've talked to someone about something and I'm like, oh yeah, you're right. I can maybe still not like something, but I'll think more highly of it. Uh, yeah, same. I've, I've, I've had similar experiences. I, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of times it shows that I've convinced myself that I don't like, but I don't actually know them. <laughs> yes, that is that is true with a lot of things, specifically Sondheim. Uh, <laughs> oh, make sure you uh, check back in next week when we cover Company, the Ooh. first musical that I think we can say really begins the Sondheim era, right? And the first show that I will be seeing again when Broadway reopens. Yes, that is the first show that I'll be seeing when Broadway reopens. I had tickets for the 25th and... I was, it was the last it was the last Broadway show I saw. You know what? That's like saying that the last person you had sex with before uh, before COVID was Chris Pine at his horniest. It's like, you know what? At least he got it when it was good. It was. That was the last person I had sex with before COVID. Adam, you've never had sex. Why are you lying to me? How dare you? Adam is famously uh celibate, much like Leona Samish. And do I hear a waltz? Never had it's sex. True. I, I wear I wear a steel chastity belt. No one's getting beyond these bars. Beyond these palace walls. <laughs> so I think to close us out tonight should be one Miss Melissa Erico because she did the Encore's production mm-hmm. and the only other recording with Elizabeth Allen is The Gay Life. And I just don't have the time to find that and use that as our audio. So I'm going to have Miss Melissa Erico close us out. The most recent to Leona of New York. Sound good? Sure, I'm down for an Erico moment. Yeah, I don't know, maybe some Amour. I love Amour. Oh yeah, Amour, do it. Talk, yeah, talk about a musical that's about from Europe that's actually charming. A hundred percent. Love it so much. Other people's yeah. stories, other people's lives. Amour it up. Amour it up. All right, thank you so much guys and uh, keep your ears open for company next week. Bye! Jean-Marie.
have fallen out with Charles Trenet, Frank Sinatra's in Montmartre in a silver Chevrolet. And where is Greta Garbo? And who is Howard Hughes? It's other people's stories and other people's news. You won't find my story in a magazine. A young girl from a convent, all of 17. Then she had a suitor, his beard was turning gray. Imagine her reaction. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.